This week, we're looking at Jesus' power in a different area. We're looking at Jesus' power over diseases. You can all see the PowerPoint, yes? Yes, okay. Sickness and disease is something that touches all of us, even as it has all men, women, and children throughout history. No one is immune, not even we in America during the 21st century, with all our medical advances and technology. We still get sick, and sometimes we get sick with illnesses for which there is no cure. Many go through life with debilitating injuries, deformities, and sicknesses, and others even die from illnesses, whether cancer, stroke, AIDS, or something else. And you don't have to be old to die or suffer greatly from disease. But one of the remarkable things about Jesus is that Jesus has power over diseases. Think about how much worse the medical situation must have been in ancient days. But then Jesus appears, and he can heal any sickness or infirmity. Who wouldn't want to go see Jesus and become well? The New Testament records many amazing miracles from Jesus, demonstrating his power over diseases. But why? Why did Jesus do these miraculous healings? Did Jesus simply want to make people's lives better? Was he seeking to immediately usher in a kingdom free of sickness and death? Was Jesus unveiling a new Christian privilege, freedom from sickness? Or is healings about something greater? We're going to consider these questions as we look at two different miraculous healings today. First, the healing of a paralytic in Mark 2, and then the healing of a man born blind in John chapter 9. Let's pray before we continue. Our great God, we thank you for this word. Pray that you help me to be able to explain it. Jesus, you are the great healer. And it's going to be amazing just to see, as we talk about this word today, what you did. But God, we're just so grateful that you've healed us of an even greater disease. I pray that you would edify your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 is where we find our first account. We're going to read verses 1 to 12. Let's first get the context. We're early in Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. Jesus has called his first disciples. He's started to do miracles. And he has begun preaching a gospel of repentance in light of God's coming kingdom. At the close of Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals a leper, actually by touching the man, an act that would normally make Jesus ceremonially unclean. But because of Jesus' power, rather than Jesus becoming unclean, the leper was made clean, instantly and totally. Poignantly, Jesus forbid the cleansed leper from telling anybody about what had happened. But the leper disobeyed, causing Jesus to become swarmed by people all looking for healing. And this is then where we find our first text. So Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Follow along as I read. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, 
bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So we've read our text. Let's now begin our study of this passage with simple observations. Jesus comes back to Capernaum, which is kind of like Jesus' second hometown after he moved from Nazareth. Capernaum was a fishing town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. He's at home. This may actually be Peter's home that Jesus is, is using as a residence, but says he's at home. But word gets around that Jesus is at home, and people start flocking to him so that there's no room even to stand in the doorway. Jesus' house is packed. There's probably a crowd outside looking and listening through the windows. And what is Jesus doing in the house? Notice, not healing, but what? What's he doing? Teaching, that's right, he's teaching. He's speaking the word to them. Now, a group of four men bring a paralytic on a pallet. We don't know the man's specific problem or the extent of it. The word just indicates that he was lame. But he is being carried on a pallet, so he could be pretty severely paralyzed, paraplegic, maybe even quadriplegic. This man is not able to walk. Remember, there's no wheelchairs back then. This man has to be carried to get around. These men want to get the paralyzed man to Jesus, but they can't because of the crowd blocking the way. So what do they do? Go home? Try again tomorrow? No, they go to the roof. Homes back then many times had an outdoor staircase that made the second floor of the roof, or the second floor of the roof accessible. And then what do they do? They make an opening in the roof. A typical Jewish home at this time had a roof made of tree branches supported by wooden beams and then covered with hardened clay. Or sometimes they were, they were kind of like uh, clay blocks that were then covered with a, another layer of clay. This is the layer that they decide to dig through and make a hole. I imagine this would have been a little distracting to those listening to Jesus' word inside, not only because of the noise, but perhaps pieces of the roof actually falling in. But not only do the men make an opening, they then lower the paralytic through the rather large opening through the roof right into Jesus' presence. Now, how do they lower him? Do they have some cloth or some ropes? Did they just use their hands? Do they get help from inside? We don't know. Text doesn't say. But they do lower him. 
And notice Jesus' reaction. Jesus doesn't say, hey, that's my roof, or that's Peter's roof. You better pay for that. Or, hey, I was teaching here. In fact, there's no indignity or rebuke from Jesus at all. Rather, the text says that first, Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. Interestingly, it's not that he saw the paralytic's faith, but he saw their faith. But then notice, and this is quite unexpected, Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And notice this is a passive verb expression. The subject receives the action. Your sins are forgiven by whom? Well, apparently by Jesus. Jesus is the one who's declaring this. And he claims a few verses later that he has authority to forgive sins. But that's his but this is probably strange to his listeners, because against whom are all sinful offenses? They are against, against God. So how can anyone forgive the sins against God except God himself? And this is what some of the scribes present in Jesus' house are wondering. And remember, a scribe is an expert in the law. That is the Torah. The scribe's silent conclusion is that Jesus must be blaspheming. If only God can forgive sins done against him, and Jesus is claiming the ability to forgive sins, then Jesus must be claiming to be God. Not a God, but the God. Only Yahweh can forgive sins committed against Yahweh. And this is a pretty logical conclusion, right? The scribe's to some extent, get what is happening. And they conclude, blasphemy. But there's one detail they've not considered, which is what Jesus is going to show them. Notice that Jesus is immediately and supernaturally aware of the scribe's silent condemnation of him. And he puts a question to his accusers. Which is easier? Well, first he asks them, why are you wondering? But then he says, which is easier? To tell a paralytic that his sins are forgiven or to tell him to get up pick up his pallet, and go home. Well, what is the answer to that question? It's to say... Exactly, Steve, you're exactly right. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it can't be verified. Now, truly accomplishing forgiveness is not necessarily easy, but telling someone that his sins are absolved is very easy. There's no way to tell whether that statement is true or false. And isn't this what the Catholic Church and the Pope still do today? Do this many acts of penance to pay for your sin, and your sin will be absolved, and you'll be back in a state of grace. Well, to say that's pretty easy. There's no way to check or to contradict their math. Who can really tell if God forgave your sins? Or if the penance over is overdoing it or underdoing it? You don't know. There's no way to tell. But you can tell pretty easily whether a paralyzed man suddenly walks. Most people would find it pretty hard to, with authority and with genuine expectation, to tell a lame man to walk. Pronouncing forgiveness is way easier than pronouncing healed paralysis. But Jesus goes on. He has his rhetorical question hanging in the air. But then he says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now notice the, the word but indicating contrast. 
Jesus is saying, in contrast to what I just said about something being easier or harder, here's something else. But notice also that this is not a complete sentence. It's expecting another part. So that you may know, and then what? What's going to cause his accusers to know that the Son of Man, and remember, that's a messianic title that Jesus claimed for himself. How are they going to know that the Son of Man indeed has authority to forgive sins? Trailing off, Jesus then turns to the paralytic and tells the man to do exactly what Jesus pointed out was more difficult than saying your sins are forgiven. And you can see the emphatic nature of Jesus' command. He says, I say to you. This is based on my authority. I say to you. And how long does it take for the paralyzed man to do what Jesus says? It's pretty quick. It says he gets up and immediately picks up his pallet. Now, this is not possible under normal circumstances. Even with modern medical technology and surgery, if there was surgery even possible in this situation, it would take this lame man weeks or more to learn how to walk and to build up his muscles. His first steps would be extremely shaky. He'd probably fall immediately. And this, if this man was lame beyond his legs, if he was quadriplegic, he certainly would not be able to pick up his pallet. But the man does just this. He gets up, picks up his pallet, and then just leaves in the sight of everyone. Jesus healed the man. Totally. But how? What was the method that Jesus used to heal the man? He spoke. He simply spoke. It was healing by command. Healing by a word. Now note the crowd's response. They are all amazed. They glorify God. And they say, we've never seen anything like this. Let's think more about interpretation questions on this passage. By healing the paralytic and considering what he said, what did Jesus prove to the scribes and to everyone there? Jesus has authority to, to forgive sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. He says, this is so that you may know I'm going to do the harder thing. He had to be, um, if he can do the healing that shows that he has power and authority, and that verifies what he said earlier. And if Jesus, the son of man, has the authority to forgive sins, and only God can forgive sins, then who must Jesus be? He's God. He's Yahweh. He has to be. It doesn't make any other sense, or it doesn't make sense any other way. Now, though Jesus is God and has authority to forgive sin, what does Jesus observe that was part of his pronouncing forgiveness to this man in particular? What did he see? He saw faith. And he said, he saw their faith. I'm going to assume that the paralytic's faith is part of that. It wasn't just that he saw the people carrying the paralytic's faith. No, they were exercising faith. The reason he's able to say what he does to the man is that the man himself had faith. He had faith in Jesus. Now, how did this man and the men who carried him demonstrate this faith? 
how could Jesus have seen their faith? That's right. They came. They came for healing. And when there was a crowd, they didn't stop. Their faith was demonstrated by bringing the paralytic and stopping at nothing to put the man in Jesus' presence. These men rudely interrupted Jesus' teaching session, also made a large and inconvenient hole in the roof of this house. Therefore, these men not only had faith in Jesus' power, but also in Jesus' what? His compassion, his goodness, his mercy. These men believed that Jesus would be willing to heal this paralytic even in the middle of his teaching session, even if they had made a hole in the roof. If they could just get this man before Jesus, he would heal him. He would have compassion because Jesus is good. They must have believed that Jesus is good. Now, it's striking that Jesus does not address this man's paralysis first. What does this show us about the man's physical need? It's not the most important. His paralysis, as debilitating, as tragic, and as uh, a trial of this man's life as it was, it wasn't the most important, or else the compassionate Christ would certainly have dealt with it. Now, something else was more important, and it was forgiveness of sins. In fact, the man's physical benefit is not the ultimate point of this miracle. Certainly, Jesus was demonstrating love and compassion to this man. But why, really, did Jesus do this miracle, and why did Mark record it for his readers? It was to show... Jesus had the authority to forgive sins, which means Jesus must be what? He must be God and Messiah. This miracle is presented both by Jesus and by Mark, our gospel writer, to show that Jesus is the Messiah and God. And if Jesus is the Messiah and God, how ought men to react to such a revelation? By repenting, by believing, by trusting in, and by following Christ. That's why these gospels were written, weren't they? Bring the readers to belief and then encourage them to obey and follow their powerful and good Savior, even through trials, suffering, and death. So yes, this miracle is a sign of compassion and the power of Jesus, but ultimately it's so that we would believe in Jesus as Messiah and as the Son of God. We're going to notice a similar set of truths in play in our second account. We won't talk about application for this passage just yet. Let's move over to John chapter 9 now, where we're going to look at another example of Jesus' healing. John chapter 9, verses 1 to 40, the whole chapter. What's the context for this miracle? Well, now we're later in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And many Jews, it says in the previous chapter, have believed in Jesus as Jesus teaches on the temple grounds. However, these same believers, do a, they do an about-face. Because as Jesus continues to teach, they actually seek to stone Jesus. Because Jesus asserts that Jews are still slaves to sin, 
and that Jesus himself is God. The conclusion of chapter 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham was born, I am. They sought to stone him, but he escaped their attempted lynching as John 9 begins. He leaves the temple, and then here's the next thing that happens. John chapter 9, verse 1, we'll read to the end of the chapter. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes, that is, the blind man, and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but, now, but how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. But the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to him, said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, 
that you do not know where he is from, yet, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. All right, this is a much larger section. We won't be able to observe everything that we could in this passage. But let's note some main things. Note that Jesus and the disciples see a man blind from birth. Total blindness is a severe affliction, even today. And the disciples ask a question. A question that demonstrates a viewpoint consistent with Jewish thinking at the time. Where did this affliction come from? Was it a result of this man's sin, or was it the result of his parents' sin? I note the disciples only give these two choices. But notice Jesus' answer. This man was not born blind because of sin. But why? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now notice Jesus does not heal with a word here, nor is there a specific mention of faith. Jesus spits, he makes clay, and he puts the clay mud on the man's eyes and has the man find his way to the pool of Siloam and wash. Now the pool of Siloam was a large pool in the southern part of Jerusalem. Jesus is probably still close to the temple, uh, more on the eastern side. Now, normally, does putting mud on someone's eyes and then having it washed off cure congenital blindness? Obviously not. How could putting mud on anybody's eyes ever be helpful in helping their eye condition? Indeed, the steps of this healing might sound a little random, even counterproductive. But they're not. Think back. Have we ever seen a creative act of God involving dirt? Yeah, clearly in Genesis, right? Also, the way man was originally made. He was made from the dust of the ground in Genesis 2. Moreover, some of you may know, spitting and making clay was considered what, according to the tradition of the Jews? It counted as work. That was considered work. And what day is it? It's the Sabbath. So, as we see in the passage, in the view of the Pharisees, by healing the man in this way, what has Jesus done? He's, he's broken the Sabbath. He's violated the Sabbath. He's broken the law of God. 
And if Jesus, if Jesus violates the Sabbath, what can he not be, according to the Pharisees? He can't be from God. He can't be the Son of God. He can't be Messiah. Because clearly, Messiah is going to be a righteous one. He's going to keep the law of God. And Jesus is breaking the law, at least in their view. But there's a problem with this conclusion, as even other Pharisees in the text point out. Problem is, if he is a lawbreaker, and if he's not really from God, then how did he do this miracle? How did he heal this man? So he got a problem. The Pharisees, mostly referred to as the Jews here, they can't figure out how to make sense of this situation. How can this blind man be healed by a Sabbath breaker and sinner? They eventually hit on a potential solution. Maybe this healed man wasn't really healed at all. Maybe he wasn't actually born blind. They bring in the man's parents for corroborating testimony. The parents are scared to testify. Because notice the Pharisees have already determined that if you confess Jesus to be Messiah, you'll be kicked out of the synagogue. That is, you'll be excommunicated from polite Jewish society. If you confess Jesus to be Messiah, you're going to be put out. So the parents don't go that far. Parents verify that the healed man is their son and that he was formerly blind. So the Pharisees need another loophole. Clearly this man seems to have been healed, but what are they going to do? So they bring the healed man back in and they try to get the man to denounce Jesus as a sinner. Somewhat ironically, they say, give glory to God. But that's, a, that's basically a call for the man to tell the truth, to confess, as if the man had been lying before. But the man refuses to give in to their browbeating. Rather, what does the formerly blind man assert the miracle proves about Jesus? Jesus has to be. He has to be from God. God doesn't listen to sinners. No one's heard of a man being born uh, blind and then healed. Clearly, Jesus is from God. But notice what the man received for such a reasonable and bold confession. He was reviled by the assembly and ejected. He was put out. Probably this was this represented the excommunication from Jewish society. Hearing of this expulsion, Jesus soon found the man again and revealed to the man that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah. And notice what the man does in response. He confesses his faith in Jesus, and he worships him. The section concludes with a declaration from Jesus for why Jesus came into the world. To open the eyes of the blind and to blind the eyes of the seeing. And Jesus specifically says the Pharisees are part of the group that were going to receive the latter half. They claimed sight, and for doing such, their sin remained on them. All right, now let's interpret some questions based on what we've observed. Do some interpretation questions. What was the disciples' understanding regarding the origin of disease? That's right. The sin had to be based on one's own actions or the actions of the parents, potentially. This is not simply that sin, rather disease, is the result of sin back from the fall. This is personal sin. What you have done or what your parents have done, that's why you have this sickness. 
By the way, this thinking is not uncommon today. Even among Christians, sometimes we are tempted to think, or might even hear people say, why did this bad thing happen to me? Is it because there's some sin in my life that I don't know about? Or why is my child born with a defect? Is God punishing me for something? Now, do illness and injury come from sin? They do. Sometimes. Just one second, Steve. Sometimes the connection between sin and illness is obvious. Take liver damage due to alcoholism or venereal disease as examples. Those clearly result from personal sin choices. Further, some of the Old Testament curses on Israel for disobedience included disease. Even in the New Testament, Paul warns that some in the Corinthian church had become sick or died for eating or drinking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, even using the occasion for sin. But illness and calamity are not necessarily due to sin, and which Old Testament saint is an obvious example of this? Man who was covered with boils? Job. He was a righteous man. He experienced incredible calamity, including physical disease, and he had not done anything wrong. And as it is with this man born blind, God created this man blind from birth, not because of sin, but in order that Jesus might later do mighty works in this man's life. Steve, are you going to say something? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a great question. There's a logical problem here. How could the man himself have done any sin if he was born blind? Yeah, I don't know what they would have said. Maybe they thought he had sinned in the womb, or if they're just groping in the dark for an answer. If it wasn't the parents, it had to be him somehow. Yeah, that definitely is a problem. But they were looking for a solution, but Jesus had to say, look, the way you've been thinking, and really this was consistent with Jewish thinking at the time. The way you've been thinking about the origin of disease is not quite right. Yes, sometimes it's the result of sin, but don't assume that it always is. This man was actually born this way for God's glory. Now, why did Jesus heal this man the way that he did? Because it's very different from the other one we looked at. Makes the clay, all that. Why did Jesus do it that way? Yeah, Roy. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great explanation, Roy. Both those things that you said. 
Yeah, Jesus did this knowing that it was the Sabbath, knowing that the, the Pharisees would go nuts over this. You're breaking the Sabbath, but he's exposing them. He's exposing their false view of the Sabbath, their false view of God, their man-made traditions that violate the law of God by refusing, by forbidding people from doing good on the Sabbath. If you look at the times that Jesus heals throughout his ministry, he often does it specifically on the Sabbath and in a way that exposes the Pharisees. They hate it. They hate seeing him heal on the, on the Sabbath. <clears throat> they are so, it's one of the things that, that sets them off the most. But he's showing them, you are all wrong. You're totally wrong in your understanding. And by bringing it to sharp focus, they think he's violated the Sabbath. But this man was clearly healed. He's giving them uh, clear evidence that he is the Messiah. He is from God. And that their rejection of him is totally unwarranted. Dwayne, are you going to say something? Yeah, wow, that's a that's a good way to put it. I didn't even think about it in those terms, but yeah, by healing the man more blind, he's doing exactly what he said at the end of the passage. I'm giving sight to the blind. But I'm showing that you who say you see, you're clearly blind. <clears throat> and in a way, by exposing it, he's um, not causing them, maybe causing them. They, are hard, they harden their hearts in response. They're not willing to consider the evidence. <clears throat> they can't accept the evidence of this man's healing and the evidence that <clears throat> Jesus really is God and Messiah. Because they've already concluded he's not the Messiah. They're ready to put anybody out of the synagogue who confesses so. So this is another one of those examples of they don't need more evidence. They need their fundamental assumptions changed because they're not willing to accept the implications of the evidence that there is. Now, Jesus healing of the man, as we said, did prove Jesus to be the Messiah. And the blind man's confession and worship at the end of the passage proves that Jesus is not only Messiah, but he's God. He's worthy of worship and faith. Now, Jesus, he makes that statement at the very end. What does he mean when he says, I came to open the eyes of the blind, but to make those who see blind? And we kind of already began to explain it. The idea is that Jesus came to save the repentant elect and to condemn and judge the blind self-righteous. Answers in Genesis puts it this way. The man who acknowledged his blindness both physical and spiritual, was healed of both. The Pharisees would not acknowledge their spiritual blindness, even though they were physically able to see, and therefore they could not find forgiveness for their sins. Jesus says, your sin remains on you. But the man who confessed faith in Jesus, by extension, his sin was forgiven. Notice again here, Jesus' earthly mission is not ultimately about doing miracles, or ending physical blindness. Jesus' mission primarily focuses on spiritual eyesight, that is, for salvation from sin. So we could also say of this miracle, why did Jesus do it, and why did John the Apostle record it for us? How was the audience meant to respond? Yeah, Roy. 
That's right. This is so that those reading the account, those hearing it, would believe in Jesus. I mean, John says so explicitly, as you noted, Roy, at the end of his gospel, these signs were recorded, and John is very selective about the miracles he's chosen. He doesn't give all of them. He couldn't give all of them. He says, I chose these. I reported these to you so that you might believe that Jesus is Messiah and Son of God, and that in him you would have eternal life. And it's the same for us today. Look at these miracles. We see Jesus' claims. We say, he is Messiah and Son of God. I have to believe in him. He is my, he is the way of salvation. This is not to say that Jesus was dispassionate towards the men he healed. No, other passages stress that Jesus had great compassion. And this compassion motivated the healing that he did for various people. And also it motivated his teaching. But Jesus' mission was not to make people's lives more comfortable. It was to save people from sin. Moreover, Jesus' miracles were, miracles were not done merely to alleviate pain. Jesus' miracles were bold assertions of who Jesus really is. And the miracles were signs. Signs pointing people to their necessary belief in, their trust in, and their obedience to Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. Now that we've done these first two steps of study on both of these passages, Let's now go to step three and consider application. I have a couple questions here for us to consider. Number one, should Christians expect healing from their infirmities as part of a new life privilege brought about by Christ? Well, the answer is no. Seeing the true purpose of Jesus healing miracles we can already see how many Christians go astray today when it comes to expecting or searching for miraculous healing of Christian illnesses. Some today claim, God doesn't want you to suffer. Believe in the Lord and he will heal you. He will make you walk again. He will cure your cancer. He will end your infertility. You just have to have faith. But such assertions profoundly misunderstand the Bible's words on Jesus' healing ministry on illness in general, and on suffering. As we've already seen, especially in John 9, some affirmities are actually for the display of God's glory and part of God's doing mighty works in, for, and through a person. Moreover, there are several examples in the New Testament, in the New Testament of godly men becoming sick, remaining sick, and not being miraculously healed, even though they were with people who did miraculous healings in the past. Consider 2 Timothy 4.20. 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul says that he left his companion, Trophimus, sick at Miletus. You mean an apostle who did various miracles, including healing, didn't just heal Trophimus? Or in Philippians 2.25-30. Philippians 2.25-30, Paul relates how faithful Epaphroditus got sick and nearly died in service to Paul and to God. Again, no healing, no healing from God, no healing from Paul, no miraculous healing. What's up with that? And Paul himself suffered serious illness as he reports to the Galatians in Galatians 4, 12 to 15. This man who healed others got really sick. <laughs> but Paul, interestingly, confesses that it was due to his illness that he got to preach to the Galatians. Talk about illness to the glory of God. 
And there was no miraculous healing there. This is not to say, though, that God cannot or does not bring about healing in response to prayer offered in faith. James 5 even gives instructions for prayer along these lines. God can and sometimes does heal disease and pain, either miraculously or through more common means of medicine and life change. But healing and good health are not promised to believers. Sometimes, many times even, it is necessary that we as Christians remain in trials of infirmity, that we might glorify God. And wasn't this the reason for Paul's thorn in the flesh? This thorn, whatever it was, physical, emotional, spiritual, this thorn was a great trial of suffering for Paul. And Paul prayed for its release. But when God told Paul that the Lord's grace was sufficient for Paul and that God's power is manifest in weakness, Paul took courage and he sought to use his allotted suffering to glorify God. Paul understood that when I am weak, then I am strong. That is to say, when God humbles me and lays me low in suffering and I simply cling to him in faith, that's when I'm able to enjoy him and to minister powerfully and effectively for his name's sake. And is not the same true for us? This truth about the real purpose of physical infirmity and suffering, it ought to inform the way we pray about illness and physical infirmity. Let's not simply pray for anyone and everyone to be healed of sickness immediately. I mean, that is a compassionate thing to pray for, and we can pray for healing. But let's remember that God has important purposes in illness. So while we can pray for healing, let us also pray for the effectiveness of illness or the effectiveness of God's purposes in illness. Let us pray that our brothers and sisters will be able to stand up under the trials of illness and pain, however long those trials may last in God's good providence, and that those brethren will be powerful testimonies to others of God through their weakness. And let us pray most of all that God's good will will be accomplished in that situation. In contrast to the faith-healing charlatans that we sometimes see or hear today, we know that God has not promised health and healing to all his followers. But he has promised perfect provision in these short days and an internal inheritance that will not fade away, a kingdom in which there will be no disease, crying, pain, or death. Our bodies truly groan for this redemption, and it is coming. One day, if you know Christ, you will see it. A related question, number two. When calamity or illness appears in your life or in the lives of your children or of your loved ones, should you assume it is because of sin? In light of our passage today, no. No, you should not assume that. My brothers and sisters, if there's one false belief that we must free ourselves from, it's that a person's life circumstances necessarily correspond with God's attitude toward them or their own faithfulness to God. If things are going well for you, that does not mean that everything is right between you and God. And if life seems to be falling apart, 
that does not mean that God is against you. Really, circumstances cannot definitively tell you God's attitude towards you. But what can? The only revelation we really have from God? The scriptures, the Bible. If you really want to know what God's attitude towards you is, read the scriptures. Now, if you know, if you know that you're in unrepentant sin and a calamity falls upon you, do not be surprised, especially if that calamity is a direct consequence of your sin. This is God's gracious hand of discipline on you. Don't let it go to waste. As Jesus says to one man that he healed, repent before something worse happens to you. But apart from these situations of known sin, we should treat life calamities the way that the Bible mostly describes them. That is, they are testings of faith meant to refine us, meant to glorify God, meant to display Christ's worth to the world. If you really want to know whether you're walking faithfully before God, don't look to your circumstances or even your own health. Look to the word and to the counsel of others in the church who know the word and can help explain it to you. As a corollary to this, let us refrain from judging others based on their life circumstances. Don't assume that your brother or your sister suffers trials due to his or her unfaithfulness to God. Perhaps they do in some instances, but you won't know simply based on the circumstances. You will need to get to know that brother or sister and hear and see how they're actually living in order to come to a fair conclusion. Let us not make the mistake of Job's friends and Paul's opponents. Don't mistake suffering for God's disfavor. Sometimes suffering is actually a result of God's favor. That God gives an opportunity to enjoy him more, join in suffering with and for Christ, and to make God known in a greater way in the world. So that's a second thing for us to think about. And then number three, and this really hits at the, the main point of our passages today. If these miracles were recorded so that you might believe in Jesus as Messiah and Son of God, do you believe? Do you acknowledge Jesus as Lord? Have you surrendered all to him? It's no wonder that many today, like the Pharisees, refuse to accept Jesus' miracles. They say, oh, that never happened. Since doing so would necessitate the acknowledgement of Jesus as Messiah. But these miracles did happen. They were faithfully, faithfully recorded by eyewitnesses who were later martyred and had no reason to lie. They were, further, these miracles were part of a scriptural testimony that accurately described the world and man's condition. Our hearts know this word to be true. But do you believe it? Do you believe in Jesus as Son of God, Messiah, Savior? There is salvation in no one else. If you've not done so yet, repent and give everything to Jesus. Let him heal your most pressing disease. Escape from the wrath of God. Turn from your sins. Take Jesus' good yoke upon you. Trust in his righteous life alone to make you right before God. Don't hide behind supposed good works. Don't hide in your Christian culture. Jesus came to 
open the eyes of the blind. Admit, confess your blindness. Jesus knows your heart. Don't hide it from him. Take up your cross, follow Jesus to the very end, and you'll be healed. If you come to Jesus, you have no reason to fear, since he is both powerful and good. He came to save the sick and heal the spiritually blind. That was his purpose. It was a compassionate purpose. But if you do not come, if you insist that you see and that you're not blind, that you are righteous without surrendering everything to Christ, you have much reason to fear. Since Jesus himself said, you will be judged. You will be blinded. You'll be punished forever in hell. Just remember that it is not those who call Jesus Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom of God. But those whose faith results in obedience, they are the ones who will enter. Comments or questions before we close today? Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I affirm both of those things as well. I'll repeat what you mentioned. Certainly we do know in a general way in, uh, in, in terms of ultimate causation, disease, illness, pain, they are the result of sin. Those things did not exist in the world before the fall. They came as part of the curse on mankind, the consequences of sin. And you're right to point out, this is actually a strangely strong apologetic for why the earth is young and why man's scientific claims today about the origins of the earth are are not accurate. Because they don't, or those who want to combine evolution or combine um, some of the claims about an old earth with the Bible, because you see disease, you see cancer, you see things like that in the fossils that supposedly are um, part of God's very good creation. And I think we can all readily acknowledge that disease is not good. Illness is not good. It did come into the world because of sin. But as you also said, Bill, we also want to affirm that in a specific person's life, the fact that he has an illness or the fact that he has um, a particular injury or infirmity, that's not necessarily the result of his own sin, something that he did to merit God's disfavor and punishment. Yeah, so I would affirm both those things. Other questions or comments? Yes, Steve. Yeah. 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 I would agree with agree with that as well. Just to repeat your comment, James, the passage in James five that mentions healing and praying for healing and having the elders come and anoint someone who is sick. It does mention that there's a possibility of sin there. 
and that we should be confessing our sins to one another. So on the one hand, we want to acknowledge, yeah, sometimes illness is the result of sin, but we don't want to make that assumption um, whenever an illness appears in someone's life or appears in our own lives. Regardless whether sin makes us sick or not, as you were also saying, Steve, we do want to confess sin. We don't want to hide sin, and we don't want to uh, live in a live in a false way before one another, because we deny ourselves the healing that's more important, and we uh, we do injury to ourselves. Well, if you have other questions or comments, come um, or. You can't come see me afterwards because I'm over here in California, but you can email me. I guess you could come to California too. That would be that'd be pretty fun. Uh, next week, we will t- spend one more lesson talking about Jesus displayed authority via miracles. We've seen Jesus' authority over nature. We've seen Jesus' authority over disease. The next week, we see the greatest display of divine authority. Perhaps the greatest display. Oh, yeah, I think the greatest display, and that is Jesus' power over death. Jesus has power over death itself. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are the healer. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other savior. There's no other healer. But you've made you've made your healing available to us. You opened our eyes. You made known your beauty and your salvation to us so that we turn to you. We thank you for that, God. Because we were so blind, we were so lost, we were so committed to our own sin and self-righteousness, but you opened our eyes. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, O Father, for sovereignly arranging those things. I pray, God, if there's anybody um, here, anybody who listens to this message who has not yet been healed, has not yet confessed his blindness, has not yet repented, God, that you would accomplish that. I pray, God, that you would continue to build up the body at Calvary, encourage them, fill them with joy as they worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, Calvary. I will see you next week. You're welcome.